This is a Chronicle podcast, bringing you ideas in the service of medicine. From the Chronicle podcast system, this is the NPC podcast of the National Pharmaceutical Congress for February 23, 2022. The NPC podcast was created to discuss and consider the purpose, process and people of the pharma industry during the COVID era. We'll continue the healthcare conversation by answering questions sent by listeners. Just like you. This program is presented in cooperation with Imprez, Canada's next generation commercial partner. The industry is rapidly evolving, and Imprez is designed to help you evolve with it. Learn more about Imprez tailored best-in-class solutions at www.imprez.com. Our guest today is Patrick Forsyth, General Manager of ASI Canada. Pat will join your hosts, Mark and Mitch, to talk about real-world evidence, corporate cultures, and virtual work practices. And, in case you were wondering, Jim Shea is taking this week off. To start this week's conversation, here is Mitch Shannon, CEO of Chronicle Companies. Welcome to the NPC Podcast. I'm your co-host, Mitch Shannon. Uh, We're coming to you again from our podcast, Gondola, at the corner of Carlton and Jarvis, where absolutely none of the on-ice action ever escapes our attention. Here in the gondola is Mark McElwain, the pharma industry consultant and senior health policy expert. Mark, you look well-rested and ready to mix it up today. Rested? You bet. But... I'd be a bit happier if they found a way to start up spring training. Well, it's, it's coming. It's coming. It is coming. At this point, I typically have my uh, ticket to Arizona in hand, but not this year. Anyway, we need to acknowledge the empty chair to Mark's left, which is typically occupied by James Shea, the general manager of the Council for Continuing Pharmaceutical Education. Jim will be back on our next episode, but for this one time, Mark and I get to use his chair for a useful purpose which is a place to hang our coats. And we can also split his customary pizza slice, which is the one with the smoked meat. So there, we are your podcast hosts, known temporarily as Mark Mitch Saint Jim, uh, because so many of the best brand names have already been taken, such as Casino Rama and Tangerine Bank of Canada. Hey, look who wandered in to join us today. It's our old friend, Pat Forsyth, General Manager of Isaiah Canada. Pat is part of the Five Decade Club in Pharma, having started his career with Upjohn uh, back in the 80s at the age of seven. Pat, it's great to see you. Great to see you too, Mitch. Hi, Mark. Hey. So as a first question, I was going to uh, throw out a softball and ask if you missed traveling to the Upjohn head office in Kalamazoo, Michigan, but maybe we, we can skip past that. Uh, can you start by telling our listeners a little bit more about Isaiah? Absolutely. The company is a Japanese pharma company based out of Tokyo. It's been in existence for over 80 years, believe it or not. In North America, we incorporated in the early 90s. So they didn't move into the North American space till the early 90s. If I had to describe Bayes' IT, I'd say there's two things you need to know. We're focused on two therapeutic areas only, neurology and oncology. And there's two things about Bayes' that I think distinguish Bayes' as a company. Number one is our mission is something we call human health care, HHC we call it. And it's our first focus and our first thoughts go to patients and their families. And how can we improve their outcomes? How can we improve their journey? And it's a mission that comes right from Tokyo and runs through the entire organization. And we actually make all our decisions by asking, is this the right thing to do for patients? 
it really grounds the company. So it's a very distinct thing about AZI, human healthcare. The second thing that distinguishes AZI, I think, this is a company that is populated by research people. They do great research. In 2020, AZI spent 29% of its top line revenues on R&D, which positioned us number three in the top 50 pharma companies in the world in terms of money poured back into R&D. So we've been very fortunate. It's been a productive R&D pipeline, but it's definitely grounded in research, but focused on how can we help that patient. Just out of curiosity, which disease entities do you serve in neurology? Neurology, we're big into seizures and epilepsy. We are one of the companies that's working on Alzheimer's disease right now. So we have three compounds in development for Alzheimer's, so we're excited about that pipeline. Small fact that most people might not know is we actually have been in neurology for, in research in neurology for probably about 40 years. Our first product was licensed to Pfizer, so we didn't actually sell it. So we've been in Alzheimer's for a long time. We also have drugs in insomnia, and then the rest of our portfolio is all oncology, all tumor centers. Yeah, it's Mark. So how has Azai fared during the pandemic? That's a great question, because it's one that I ask my fellow general managers around, how, how's business going? For me, I can say surprisingly well. I think we fared better than most. We've launched a drug during the pandemic, We've launched new indications during the pandemic, which certainly has been a challenge. But what it's resulted in is my employee base has doubled in the last 18 months. So through the pandemic, we've doubled the number of employees and we're well into double digit growth as the company grows. So despite the pandemic, I think we've done surprisingly well. And in your opinion, what changes did the pandemic require that were for the better and likely here to stay? Yeah, great question. The reason I say great question is because when the pandemic hit, of course, like everybody else, we were shocked. Like everybody else, I thought we thought it was going to last three or four weeks. And then it just kept going and kept going. And so the first thought in my mind, you know, as, as the leader at ASI was, you know, how are we possibly going to get work done? When, you know, we can't go into the office, we're in a lockdown situation, how will this happen? And, you know, technology came to the rescue. So my observation is that, you know, Zoom and Teams and those things were all available before the pandemic, but nobody used them. So I think we fast forwarded the use of technology and the adoption of it by a decade in the last year and a half. And it was, you know, born out of necessity. So I'd say the, the things that are here to stay, our technology is more deeply embedded than it ever was, probably sped up by a decade. And that technology has changed a lot of things. So the first thing we noticed was, as a company, we feel we have an obligation to educate physicians and healthcare professionals about how to use our drugs properly, which patient to use them in, when to use them, how to manage side effects, especially in oncology. You know, these are things that make the big difference for that patient and for that patient's journey. So we have an obligation to educate, and how are we going to do that when we can't access physicians? Zoom has actually made it easier for us. I can capture an audience that might be four or five people in the past person. I can make that 30 or 40 people, and I can probably book it in a week, and it used to take three months to book. So our ability to reach physicians and their receptivity to actually sitting you know, sometimes we do it in the evenings at home to meet their schedule. So the flexibility is there, the reach is there, and on the physician's end, the desire to hear about these things and learn about, you know, new educational information has really been off the charts. So I'd say that's here to stay. If I had to think about it, I'd say for good or for bad, I think telemedicine's here to stay, not 
I think it will be part of the way physicians see patients in the future. And I'd say one of the positives that I've seen within the company is the employees that had to commute a long way love the fact that you know, they're not coming in five days a week anymore. So it's a little more human touch and a little more flexibility. So I think, you know, there's three things that I wouldn't have expected that have actually been positive. So Pat, just to circle back, you mentioned launching a new pharma product in the midst of a global pandemic. Can you tell us about that experience? It was interesting because the timing couldn't have been worse. We're launching a new molecule and the very thing we need is access to customers. And that was being shut down before our eyes. So I have to say necessity is the mother of invention. Technology helped us. The ability to reach out and educate larger groups of physicians in short order was actually one of our secrets of success. So that was a big part of it. The concern that we had and what we noticed was it wasn't just our ability to access physicians. It was the ability of patients to access their physicians. So we work in oncology as well, as I've said. And, you know, there's lots of data to show that patient visits to oncologists were down, you know, 10 to 20% through the pandemic. Patients that should have been screened, diagnosed, treated, were not being treated. I recently attended a presentation that shows that you know, we're going to pay for that, but the mortality rates are going to be up over a period of time before that fixes itself again. So access for patients and access for us was the big challenge. We were over, able to overcome it by pivoting really quickly. We trained all our reps, I think, as most companies did. How do you do a virtual call? Because it's a lot different than doing a, a real-life call. And there's some, you know, some simple things to talk about how to do it properly. How do we make it interesting? How do we do education programs that people actually want to come to? Can we be flexible? Can we meet their needs? All those things are really important. But I'd say the key thing that drove the entire success of our launch was if I'm going to talk to a physician virtually or my representative is going to have a meeting virtually, we better be adding value. You know, you can't just drop in and say hi. If you're not adding value, nobody's going to come. So we've spent a lot of time thinking about how we could add value. You're listening to the NPC podcast with today's guest, Pat Forsyth, GM of ICA Canada. Pat, you're known among uh, National Pharma Congress delegates as Suitcase Forsyth. I'm sure that won't surprise you to hear that, possibly because of the wide range of companies you've been associated with and led, and they've all been A-list multinational companies. What have you learned about the cultures of different organizations, what they share and what sets them apart? Great question. You know. I always thought they called me suitcase foresight because of my Louis Vuitton luggage, but it's a great question. I have had the opportunity just through the you know consolidations and mergers of the farm industry, not always my choice, of working in a few different spots. If I look back on my very first company, I was planning on being a lifer. I had no intent of ever leaving. In fact, I was looking at houses in Kalamazoo, Michigan, believe it or not, when you know the mergers and acquisitions happened. So interestingly for me in that journey, you know, I've been well-trained. I've been in large pharma companies with great training. So I've had great training through my career. And every time I thought I was, you know, well-trained and completely polished in my understanding of the business and patient realities and healthcare in general, I'd move to a new company and they would look at it completely differently. And I will say every company I've worked with has a different approach. And I would realize the blind spots that I had in my last company when I thought, okay, I've got this down. The blind spots would suddenly appear. I think it's made me a stronger leader and a stronger contributor to my company today because I have had all those varied experiences. 
Culture is the one thing that's interesting through the whole piece. You asked about different cultures in the companies. Your culture can be deliberate or it could be accidental. Your culture will always occur accidentally, whether you do it or not, but you can make it deliberate. What I've learned is I've taken all the good things that I've seen and tried to create a culture at design. You know, it's collaborative, treats people with respect, wants people to have a voice, no penalty environment. It's a place where we like to really challenge each other's ideas and then, you know, see if we can come up with a better product. So I've kind of taken all the great things I've seen and pushed them into where we are today. Pat, it's Mark again. Last year, you spoke at the NPC about the importance of real-world evidence. That's a topic that I'm pretty interested in. How do you think the use of real-world evidence can help add value to the pharma industry? You know, it's a fascinating question, and it's, you know, it's happening before our eyes. I'll just give you a quick stat on that. Last year alone, in breast cancer alone, there was 1,500 publications based on real-world evidence. 1,500 just in breast cancer. So it's out there, it's happening. When I spoke at the NPC meeting, one of the points that I was trying to make was technology is enabling this to happen. And so let's go back to square one. The standard is randomized controlled trials, right? It's the gold standard. You get to reduce the number of variables. You can control the power of the study with the end value. You get to define what the patient characteristics are and it gives you the best statistical model at the end. Real world evidence is messy. You don't get to control a lot of those things. So historically, you know, regulators have kind of, you know, looked at it with a skeptical eye. It wasn't always accepted as good evidence. But I think even the regulators, the payers, have started to recognize that this is important. So where can it help? I think post-marketing, you can take the study that was done in a very controlled environment and start to watch what's happening in the real world determine, is this drug doing what it's supposed to do? Are there more side effects? Are there better results in certain populations? And we're already seeing that clinicians are changing their practices based on real-world publications. So I think it can improve the patient outcomes. It can improve the way patients are treated. It can improve which patients we treat and when we treat them if we start looking at these things. So I think the real beneficiary is the patient. You know, there's possibilities that you can start to expedite approvals. As Canadians, you know, we're very patient and it takes a long time for us to get access to some of these new medications. Could real world evidence improve that? Could we get access a little quicker? I think those opportunities are there and certainly they've been seen in other jurisdictions. So I think it holds great hope. It's not perfect, but it's a way that's coming and I think it's irresistible. It's not just the industry that's doing it. Is clinical groups and clinicians and the number of publications I, that I cited, I think it's out there. So we'll see it for sure. And I think it has a great potential to impact outcomes, which is what we all want. Pat, you also spoke then a lot about the uh, new technologies and opportunities in new data points from customers with things like Fitbit or AI-driven analytics. So given how social media data has a history of being misused, how do you think pharma should approach these new technologies while avoiding problems with the privacy of customer and user data? It's kind of the topic of the day, isn't it? With social media and every day you seem to read about a hack somewhere where I always check the morning news feed and say, well, any of the companies that I work with were hacked and now somebody has my data. I would say, 
when we're talking about privacy and data, it is kind of a sacrosanct. It's in our face every day. You know, your insurance carrier who does your health coverage today, wherever you might work, they've got your personal medical data. They know what you're using. Your doctor has your data. Your bank has your data. And there's definitely risks involved in terms of privacy, but they seem to have figured it out. So my question would be, you know, why would pharma be any different? I think there's risks and we need to, you know, go in eyes wide open, but not to use some of these technologies and capabilities would be a mistake. There's challenges to overcome and we do have to be very careful. I think that there's ways to do it and to de-risk that going forward. Finally, uh, Pat, it's time to put on your soothsayer's hat and enter into our prognostication corner. Six weeks into 2022, what predictions are you prepared to make about the life sciences industry during the rest of the year? That's a really good question. You know, I would say that if there's one thing I think the pandemic has done, it's brought unlikely bedfellows together. So I think we're closer to common ground with the government and with regulators and with payers than we've ever been. We all know that pharma isn't always seen in the best light, but we all have the same goal in mind. We're all trying to improve patient outcomes, trying to give access to better health care for Canadians. And in the end, we know that we add value. It's so disappointing for me that governments don't see that we're actually an economic asset to the country. There's great jobs, you know, highly educated positions available to people. And we do add to the economy, but we're seen as a cost center. I think we're getting closer to bridging that gap with governments, closer than I've ever seen. And my prediction is that I think because of COVID and everything that's happened, that ball has started rolling. And I think we can take advantage of that and actually find some great common ground for the industry, for healthcare, for government, payers, for everything. But that would be my, my prediction. Oh, I like that prediction very much. We've been chatting with Pat Forsyth, who leads Isaac Canada. Pat, you may not have fulfilled your early ambition of becoming a homeowner in Kalamazoo, Michigan, but I think that's been our gain here in Canada. You've been a great friend of the NPC. We want to thank you for all the knowledge you've generously shared with our delegates and now with our podcast listeners. Jim's going to be sorry he missed you, so will you come back and see us after uh, Jim's released on parole? (laughs) Mitch, I have one other uh, prognostication, if I may. Yes, by all means. My second prognostication is based on something that just happened to all of us two weeks ago, and that was the retirement of Ronnie Miller, although I don't think it's official till the end of March, but Ronnie's gone. That's a big gap in the industry. Uh, I predict that Ronnie Miller will return later in 2022 in some way, shape, or form, and I predict Deputy Health Minister. Well, that's uh, wild speculation, but I would say that's more likely to happen than him winning any major tournaments in uh, 2022 uh, on the links. So that's my prediction. No one, no one asked, but there, I, I went and I said it. <laughs> All right. So Pat, this was great. Thanks. And do come back and join us when Jim's around. It's always great to talk with you. Yeah, my pleasure. Thank you for the opportunity. And thanks to everyone for listening. Perhaps you have a question for Pat or comments for us about today's conversation. If so, Tag us on Twitter at 2021NPC. You can also send an email to health at chronicle.org. Attach a voice clip to your message and you might appear in an upcoming episode. If you enjoyed today's NPC podcast, please do share it with your colleagues. Find us at Apple iTunes, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. 
The NPC podcast is presented in cooperation with Imprez, Canada's next generation commercial partner. Visit them at www.imprez.com. This is your announcer, Leona Void of Chronicle Companies. The podcast producer is Jeremy Visser. John Evans and Kylie Rebenick provided research. The musical theme is performed with obsession by the NPC Podcast Orchestra, under the direction of maestro Maurizio Melbrook. We'll speak again soon. Until then, stay well.